The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, November 10th at Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election. Today's podcast will be presenting panel one, the California races, which looks at the people who were on the ballot this time around. Our panelists are Sean Clegg of Bear Star Strategies, Marva Diaz, Marva Diaz Strategies, Rob Krinke of Grassroots Lab, and the one and only Paul Mitchell of Political Data Inc. Our moderator for this panel is Seema Mehta of the Los Angeles Times, except for a brief moment when she lost internet and I had to step in and moderate a little bit. We're going to go ahead and get started with the panel in just one moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this event. Support for Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Whiteman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. I should also mention that Marva Diaz, one of our panelists, does have to jump off at 10 o'clock, so she will not quite be with us the whole hour. So um, with that, I'm going to turn this over to Seema. Seema, thank you very much, and uh, I'll, I'll let you introduce the other panelists. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so sorry about my delay. My internet was being a little bit wonky, so apologies. Um, so let me introduce uh, everybody who we're speaking with. Um, so first of all, I'm Seema Mehta, political reporter with the Los Angeles Times, and uh, also a board member of Open California and uh, the parent group of Capital Weekly. Um, so we're going to kick off our post-election conference with a rundown of key California races, battles for statewide office and Congress, ballot measures, uh, major elections, including the LA mayoral race, you know, importantly. Um, but first, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, first, we have Sean Clagg with Bear Star Strategies, who even though I'll probably always call it SCN. Um, Sean has worked on major races across the state and the nation, including for Kamala Harris and Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom. And most importantly, this year, he's working on a Rick Caruso's campaign um, for, for mayor of LA, So, which remains undecided unless something bizarre happened overnight that I didn't learn about this morning. Uh, next up, we have Marva Diaz of uh, Marva Diaz Strategies, who's worked in politics and legislative affairs for nearly a quarter century. And um, She's worked from school board races to presidential contests, Sacramento efforts, and everything from water quality and labor to education and healthcare. Um, Marva's also the editor of the California Target book, which I would not have survived this campaign season without. So God bless you and Rob and all the rest of the crew over there. Um, and then we also have Rob Cranky, who's a Democratic strategist at a principal grassroots labs, um, sorry, grassroots lab, uh, public affairs firm that conducts research on state and local government. And um, and we both live in the lovely city of Long Beach. So I suspect that we are doing this Zoom from only a couple miles apart. And uh, Long Beach is the uh, the best hidden secret in Southern California. So go Beach. And then last but not least, we obviously have Paul Mitchell, who um, who is also another reason that I've survived this campaign season. And um, he is the vice president of political data intelligence. And I think most of us in this room or in this Zoom have probably relied on PDI for information, not only about turnout, um, but about who's turning out. And um, again, it's, I'm very grateful that he and his wife have not you know, called me for stalking him, given the amount of time I spend bothering him you know, day or night about random you know, questions about some random district in the middle of nowhere. I mean, he's always so responsive and cheerful. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so with that, let's get going. Um, so the statewide elections were honestly pretty boring. Uh, so 
They weren't boring? No. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. It's pretty impressive. Gavin Newsom elected governor three times in four years. <laughs> um, yes, it's and as somebody, I can't remember who texted this to me the other day. It's like, I've seen enough. Gavin Newsom is going to be reelected. This is before a single vote was cast. Well, a single vote was cast in person. Um, so, uh, what you know? It, it, yes, the, we, we, I think most of the uh, the statewide were pretty predictable. But um, I think you know, most importantly, before election day, a lot of people were really predicting, you know, a red wave, and we didn't see that. So, what happened? And I will leave that to anybody who would like to see. I think you could kind of reduce it to one word, and it's Donald Trump. We're Two words, Donald Trump. It's uh, only one uh, word on the ballot label. Uh, look, after the recall, uh, a lot of people made fun of uh, Bear Star for for running around saying, "Look, maybe we have a roadmap for the for the for the midterms in what happened here in 2021." And if you rem remember, uh, we we tried to make the recall not a referendum on the governor, but a choice, and as much as we could, a referendum on the other side. Uh, Trump's visibility this year, his interference with with candidate selection, uh, the cast of crazies. I think nationally, we saw Repu real Republican defection to Democrats at the margins. That's the only way you can explain Abigail Spanbarger surviving in Virginia. And I think we're gonna see the same thing at the margins in California. And it's why I'm, I'm very optimistic about um, Katie Porter and Mike Levin uh, and, and Adam Gray and all those Democrats on the bubble. It's not just about democratic turnout. I think that there's a turnout factor and there's a turnoff factor. Uh, and the Republicans in a uh, historically uh, bad set of circumstances for an incumbent party with runaway inflation, uh, with, with, with working people kind of defecting from our party uh, and feeling the most pissed off and on the margins, they managed to make this election about them. I think there's one other word too, and it's abortion, right? Yep. We had a poll um, in LA for one of my candidates. We asked a question, I've got it here. Agree or disagree, I would never vote for a candidate for office who tried to ban abortions and criminalize women who seek abortions. 73% agree, 88% with Dems, 65% with NPPs. Our candidate became, well, already was, but became the only lifelong pro-choice candidate in the race. We're winning by 18. Well, and we're sort of skipping ahead, but I think this is very relevant with Prop 1. How much did Prop 1, and I mean, people were wondering, you know, there was a lot of skepticism about, okay, we're in California. Abortion rights are pretty sacrosanct here. You know, it's not like we're living in one of these states where, you know, that there are immediate threats. And you know, so basically when you're dealing with $6 a gallon gas, are you going to think about a woman in another state? Um and I think I, there are a lot of questions about that, but it appears that yes, yes, people were. So, I mean, what, how do you think Prop 1 affected these races and what, had, what kind of impact could it have on these congressional races that haven't been called yet, particularly in places like Orange County? Well, I'll jump in real quick on this question because I think first off, uh, I think Sean and Rob are right, but also the setup of the question is a little bit misleading because there wasn't a red wave, there wasn't like a 30, 40 seat pickup, but there was a very consequential Republican victory in then being able to take over control of the House for the next two years at least. So um, it was consequential, just not as big as we, as a lot of people expected. I, the day before the election, thought, uh, you know, Republicans would pick up 10 seats, but not pick up any seats in California. And a lot of the reason why I didn't think that uh, Republicans would pick up seats in California is exactly what we're talking about with Prop 1 and abortion. Um, Sean's right that in the recall, Governor Newsom showed a brand of Democratic messaging that was more 
you know, pushing out democratic core values, not just reacting or being on your heels to respond to Republican uh, issues. And um, I think that a lot of people looked at California at that recall and thought, oh my God, that's right. But then we're quickly thrown off by the loss in Virginia and the governor's race and thought, okay, well, never mind, you know, we're screwed and we're, you know, it really fed a lot of uh, Democrats being, you know, concerned about that messaging strategy. Um, but in California, Prop 1 had two actual, I think, effects. One was the specific voting effect, where voters were on the Democratic progressive side saying that the top reason they were turning out to vote was because of abortion. Abortion was on the ballot. It was very powerful in that way. And it, um, you know, Google, you know, California Democratic politician, and you're going to see all of them wearing pink on the days leading up to the election. Um, so I think that was the first way. The second way I just was want to point out one thing that Paul's better half, Jody Mitchell, played a you know instrumental role in the passage of Prop One. So that that his 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 neglecting to bring that up, I just want to correct that. Wrong. Oh yeah, of course, Jody's going to be on her own panel. Uh, she can do a lot of the talking on this stuff on for herself for sure. But the second thing that I think that this prop that putting Prop One on the ballot did was it forced every media outlet and every report about the election to talk about abortion in California in a way that they weren't forced to in other states. It helped set the stage for the debate and Democrats were able to you know, get their voters out and motivate, but also it, every article that was like mentioning abortion and talking about Prop 1, it was squeezing out some of those more Republican messages around inflation and gas prices and so on. So uh, I think that it had that twofold effect. Note five ballot measures across the country that, had, uh, that were on abortion, three that were uh, expanding rights, two that were trying to pull back abortion rights. In all five cases, the pro-choice side won. Um, I think this sets up a model for 2024. Um, and that's the final thing. I mean, if we if we are in a situation where we're going into 2024 with Republicans with a five seat majority in the House, Democrats either even or one seat up in the Senate, um, a presidential race and probably a Supreme Court seat sitting around somewhere just to spice things up. This is going to be like for all the marbles in 2024. I, I just add that, that, you know, we did about four weeks of TV in the governor's reelection campaign in the fall, and we devoted the lion's share of the gross rating points to a spot uh, advocating for Prop 1. The governor didn't ask for your vote in any of his reelection messaging. We were focused on helping the broader ticket and, and, and just awareness, Prop 1 awareness, we saw as a turnout driver. It reminded me very much of uh, 2014 with Governor Brown and the two ballot measures where he didn't really campaign for himself. He campaigned for these two ballot measures, which he made basically the campaign for himself. Um, so, but it looks like Prop 1's probably going to get more votes than any candidate in this race. Um, so what does that say about the electorate? It says Prop 1 got a lot of Republican votes. Yeah, yeah and it, it, it also suggests that Prop 1 probably provided coattails to a lot of Democrats in terms of turnout and should have affected a lot of those races that are the closest, most competitive races. A lot of these uh, tight congressional races, I think you can look to Prop 1 as providing an easier way for those Democratic candidates to push out their voters and to have their you know real good messaging. So um, I think it had huge impacts. Uh, and it's ironic that you know it was not too long ago that we were seeing 
ballot measures almost pass on parental notification and other abortion restrictions in California. And now the thing's so consensus that basically an outright protection without limits for abortion rights in California passed with more votes than any other ballot measure or candidate on the ballot. It's kind of crazy. I'll add one thing. Um, I do mostly local uh, races, not federal races. Um, and what I noticed on the local level is, especially when it was Democrat on Democrats, the more progressive Democrat that embraced Prop 1 and made them the 100% choice candidate tended to do more, better across the board. It was the time I've in 26 years, I've never seen so many pink mailers to uh, Paul's point, right? Everyone's wearing pink. Everyone did pink mailers, pink ink. I don't know how much they went through this time. <laughs> But it was just one of those things where even if it didn't seem as though it was driving turnout for a while there, um, it was definitely a message that those progressive Democrats needed to embrace to win. Thank you. Um, and then uh, just to, to, I'm sorry to keep focusing on the congressionals, but I just can't wait to see what happens in some of these races. Uh, but this year seems like such a roller coaster where, you know, we last year we had redistricting. Democrats seem pretty optimistic after redistricting, you know, that, you know, that some Republican incumbents were drawn into tighter districts. Um, you know, some of, uh, and you know, that some of their incumbents were protected, then inflation, I mean, the year sort of Biden had, you know, obviously, uh, middling, you know, approval ratings, then Dobbs happened. And there was some question about whether that would inspire, you know, some women to perhaps some Republican women to vote for Democrats, and, you know, whether it would inspire younger people, people of color to turn out more than they typically have in, in, uh, in midterm elections. And then the last couple of months, it just seems like everyone's just been doom scrolling, you know, in terms of gas prices, inflation, grocery prices. Um, so the whole year has just been really up and down. And I mean, in recent weeks, you know, you had Julia Brownlee sort of ringing alarm bells. And this is a district that President Biden won by 20 points. Um, so what happened? How did we get here? And why? I, I We touched upon this earlier, but in terms of why, you know, why this red wave didn't happen. But in California in particular, how did we get from where we were post redistricting to now? I can say that the opportunities that you identified for Democratic gains after this redistricting are going to be realized next cycle. Yeah. And the great news for Democrats nationally, that if we indeed lose the House and it looks like they're going to narrowly take the House, we're going to be able to take it back on the presidential cycle. In the, in the, in the previous three decades, you've had to wait to lose the presidency to claw back to, to, uh, to, to take the House back. So it took, you know, 12 years after 1994. It took eight years after 2010. We can take this back next year. Yeah, I think the redistricting set up Democrats well. Um, but, it, you know, Matt Rexrode, a Republican uh, redistricting expert, uh, tweeted out yesterday or the day before that redistricting plans need to be judged over the course of a whole decade, not just one election cycle. And a lot of these districts, particularly when we were looking at like the 45th district, the Michelle Still seat, we were really looking at that as being a district that could be won in future years. Um, and the uh, Calvert seat that Rollins is currently up in right now, but I think that that's going to kind of probably come down uh, a lot or crash through the floor after um, more votes come in. But that seat is something that in future years, I think Democrats can be really competitive in. Um, the Northern LA County, the Christy Smith, Mike Garcia seat, again, a district that will continue to be more Democratic with more Latinos uh, getting into voting age and those demographic shifts. So a lot of districts that are these really close districts right now, based on our analysis going through the reissuing cycle, they weren't just set up just to be, you know, snap your fingers, create democratic victories. They were set up to be uh, effective through the decade. But if we lose Levin or Gray or Porter, we're gonna get it back. 
We won't lose any of those three. You're confident that all three are going to win elections? I'm I'm confident in Levin and Porter for sure. Um, in the primary and in past elections, those areas still swing blue post-election with those counts. But they didn't uh, in the Central Valley, the counting is so uneven, and I don't know what's necessarily going to happen. Salas could end up looking better after more Kern County votes come in. Adam Gray's district could go either way, but it's it shifted Democratic in the primary. So, well, but in the recall, um, so actually, Sean, let me bother you about this. In the recall, though, didn't you see some uh, Republican shifting? No, it's kind of a funny story. I ran into Katie Porter at the last event for Gavin Newsom during the recall, and she gave me a hard time. She's like, you're, you're, you're branded a single Republican recall. You're not making it any easier for me in Orange County. And I was like, oh, come on, we're going to win big in your district. So I went back and looked at the numbers because I'm a jerk. I sent her a snotty text. And I'm like, look, we're up seven. We're going to win by 10 uh, in, in California 45. It's back, you know, her old district. Uh, and uh, when the final count is tallied, sure enough, I get a text back from Katie Porter. And she's like, Sean, you were only off by 100%. We actually split three points in the district. And and why? Because I, I think in this new, like, self-sorting, um, voter fraud uh, attack on democracy environment that we now live in, uh, a lot of the Republicans aren't just voting in person at vote centers and on election day, they're walking their ballots in. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a heavily Republican area, you might get a redshift. And if I were, like, you know, I don't want to be the, you know, the doomsayer here, um, because I think that, that uh, Mike and Katie are going to pull these races out. But what I am worried about is the same dynamic. And if what carried out in the recall um, uh, sort of repeats itself, uh, it's going to be a, a problematic scenario. Rob Pyers did a great bit of work looking at the red shift, blue shift from the primary and in past elections. And, and Sean's right. A lot of Republicans are dropping their ballot off at the polls. It's like, if I can look the person in the eyes, I'll trust them to take my mail-in ballot. Um, but the redshifted peers, like just the short uh, hand of it is, the redshift really is strongest in the mo in the areas where the Republicans are the most MAGA. So like Republicans in Riverside County and the Central Valley are gonna be more MAGA than like a suburban, white, high-educated Republican in Orange County. And so the, the redshift push seems like it's stronger in uh, those inland places than it is in like Orange County. Um, and also some of it can just come down to election administration. Riverside has a huge redshift uh, late, but it also looks like they're not counting on and posting all of their in-person votes until later than other counties. Well, let's talk about how how we vote now and how much it's changed in recent years. And um, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, I think the media is partly responsible for uh, people's skepticism about, you know, numbers changing, about not having results at 8.15 on Tuesday night. Because um, I think we've long set up this thing where, you know, everyone expects, you know, for, whether it's for newspaper headlines or whether it's for the cable shows, everyone expects you to have, or for, has long expected you to have, you know, Tuesday night, this person won and this person won by that much. And clearly that's not the world we live in, uh, both with, uh, you know, especially post-pandemic or you know, middle of the pandemic, everyone, you know, we all get absentee ballots. Um, and also just, you know, the amount of time it takes to cast votes, uh, the change in trend in terms of back in the day, Republicans used to, you know, you know, do the early vote. Democrats would vote in person. Now that's sort of flipped because of the former president. Um, so how, you know, what would you tell voters who are really skeptical because they'll see one candidate up one night and then another candidate up the next day? And um, what would you tell voters? And how do we sort of make people understand that that, that vote counting is 
that this is good, that this means the system is working, that this is not a problem that it's taking so long. This actually means that people are checking and making things are okay. I think helping people understand the process that we go through, that you have to verify these signatures on the ballot can give people a little bit more confidence about the mail-in balloting itself, and also give them a sense of the scope and scale of the time it takes to do that. It's not a Scantron that you're feeding in. A lot of these things have to happen with a human element to it, and that does take time. Another thing I posed to a friend of mine back east, um, you know, I mean, yeah, we have to wait two weeks to get results. You had to wait three hours to cast your ballot at your polling place. So, you know, potato, potato, right? But there's a lot that goes into it. And we have imposed changes deliberately in our state that increase turnout. Um, as I put it to another person too, to allow you to kind of cheat on the test, you'd sit at your kitchen table and Google everything, right? Um, you're not at the thing being like, which judges do I vote for? So I think that we've made improvements to the process. Along with that, we have to, we have to suffer the purgatory. Plus, I mean, there's other things that go into that. If you mail in your ballot, I mean, I know from our mail campaigns, it was taking six, seven days in some cases of the mm -hmm. areas of the state for a piece of mail to get into a mailbox. So if you mail your ballot on election day, it could take a long time to actually get into the right hands to be counted. And then on top of that, in terms of like the Adam Gray race that we're all talking about, there's a stack, thousands and thousands of ballots that are going to have to be processed to, to Rob's point by a person, right? There's gonna to have to be a system in place where people can watch and make sure that it's all done right. And that, that just takes a lot, a lot of time. And there does it's need really to be more oh, Go ahead, Paul. I was just gonna say, sorry, Rob. Um, the, uh, the real challenge is that we've been doing this for a long time, trying to explain uh, the process and counties have gotten better at it. It still drives me crazy that they say 100% precinct reporting. I mean, somebody yeah. tweeted that and I just like had a, you know, visceral reaction they should just stop using those term that terminology at all but um at some point it takes voters listening because you know we still have data capital weekly we've been doing these surveys and we've been asking voters uh do they trust uh that their ballot will be counted and 50 percent of republicans don't trust that their ballot's going to be counted if they mail it in uh this rampant kind of you know voter fraud claim that uh people haven't been able to shut down it's real easy to scare the bejesus out of people and tell them their ballots aren't going to be counted. It's really hard to put that genie back in the bottle and convince them that it's okay. And I talked to a Republican consultant on election night, um, and I said, look, it's pouring rain in the district that you're running a campaign in. What are you going to do? What are you doing? And he said, well, we're telling people to go to the polls. I was like, why are you doing that? It's, it's like there was a goddamn cyclone in, in Galt. You know, I mean, it's pouring rain. It's snowing. He's like, well, if we call and tell people to mail in their ballot, they'll hang up on us. Like even the mm -hmm. Republicans who should be, you know, trying to change the minds of these voters and convince them that the system's okay, uh, haven't been able to or, or just given up. And I don't know what the end game is for Republicans because it is voter suppression and it is a voter suppression that they're creating on their own voters. Yeah. If, 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 the, if they'd been smart, they would have said, oh my gosh, ballots that get turned in late, those get thrown over the Golden Gate Bridge and they never get mailed and they get left in people's trunks. Don't don't vote late. You have to vote early. And they would have won more races this cycle. Do you see any turnaround? I mean, I think, uh, I mean, actually the Orange County Republican Party on Monday put out an email that basically said, it's going to rain really badly. Um, so try to get there early. Um, Jessica Patterson, God bless her, for the last three election cycles, she's done a picture and a tweet of herself mailing right. her ballot and then a tweet with the picture of county saying that it got processed. And it's like nobody's listening. Again, I, it's like, you know, we all thought Trump was a Manchurian candidate for Putin. Maybe he was.
But if I were a Republican, I'd be wondering if he's a Manchurian candidate for the Democrats, because his attack, I mean, he's doing voter suppression on Republicans. He cost them the Senate in 2020. He cost him two to three Senate races and perhaps control of the body uh, this time. Uh, and he's the best thing we got going as a party. Yes, I was going to <laughs> <laughs> gonna move on to rain, but let's stay on that. So, I mean, obviously the, the former president has, you know, pretty obviously been flirting with uh, another run for office and we're, there's allegedly going to be a big announcement next week, I think. Um, what do you think about him taking on uh, Ron Santos the way he has uh, in the last couple of days? And I mean, do you think that what happened on Tuesday is going to alter his plans at all? No, I've never, I, I never been out before. I think he needs his candidacy as a legal shield. And that's really how they view it. Uh, I think it's a necessity for him to run. Uh, so, and the question is, can DeSantis take him out? Is he weakened? Uh, do Republicans see that they're going down a rat hole with this guy uh, and try to course correct? Uh, but the bad news is, is that, you know, the next pretender to the throne on to Sanctimonious has adopted all of the anti-democratic authoritarian ideology. And uh, and so we're going to live with this. And, uh, and the 2024 fight is truly going to be an existential fight. And, uh, and, and the good news is that they're not going to have control of both bodies potentially uh, to really subvert the transfer of power uh, if the Democrats win in 2024. You know, when uh, George Bush, George W. Bush uh, got, you know, a bad uh, midterm election cycle, he characterized it as a thumping, right? Um, when Obama had his uh, bad elections in 2010, he said he had a shellacking. Um, when Donald Trump in 2018 had his loss of uh, of all those Republican seats, he called it a tremendous success, and then started belittling the losers uh, from those the different congressional races. He even called out one of the congresswomen uh, who who lost in Florida, making fun of her, and then started attacking reporters. So on election night, I'm watching these kind of talking heads say, "Well, this is going to send the message to Trump that he needs to set aside and Republicans need to move past." And I'm just like, "What kind of drugs are you on? <laughs> That's just not what's happening." Uh, you know, Donald Trump is going to figure out a way to call everybody losers and uh, come out of this fighting, and that's the only kind of gear he has. Um, you know, so I don't think this is going to be an opportunity for Republicans to reform their party or develop new messaging or find new leadership. Um, it's still the Trump party, even if, you know, a lot of the consultants who are really, I think, smarter about this wish it would go away. I was surprised, though, to see some pushback on uh, his Ron DeSanctimonious thing on Monday night in Ohio um, from a number of people. I mean, and Twitter is obviously Twitter, and God knows what Twitter is now with the, the new ownership. But um, but there were some you know, reliable Trump supporters who who sort of looked were disappointed, and I didn't know if this represented a real break uh, with him or if this is just you know if I'm wrong. The uh, I thought the New York Post cartoon this morning said it all. You know, Humpty Trumpy had a big fall. I, I think there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are going to be looking at looking at this outcome and wondering if if if, if this is the uh, the right direction. But unfortunately, you know, to borrow Paul's phrase, they've let the genie out of the bottle, and it's the uh, it's the folks on the ground who are driving the party, and they're and 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 it's difficult. 
difficult too because he has such a lock on like a certain percentage of the primary vote. So, you know, if it's a binary him against DeSantis, you know, maybe DeSantis can beat him. If there's four or five people kind of knocking around, Trump seems to have a higher floor than a lot of people, you know, sadly. Um, he seems to have a higher floor than a lot of other people who may be deciding between others. So that makes him very competitive in a lot of primaries. And that's, you know, how he came through the last time. Yeah, I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a, a, a jogger, <laughs> like what we were talking about before. But actually, let's go back to rain, because um, I'm from the East Coast, but I've lived in Southern California for too long, and my blood has thinned, and I was like really terrified of leaving my house on Tuesday. Um, so how did, do you think the rain impacted turnout? Like how, how much of, like how, how much big of wisses are we in, in California? I went to vote on Tuesday at three o'clock. It was driving rain and there was a line around the block at my polling place in Long Beach, right? And we have a mayoral race here, um, but so much so that the bar down the street was giving people Ziploc bags, their ballots. Right? Really? So that's the answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was very proud of LA and Long Beach, right? Because there was a line probably 40, 50 people deep out in the rain waiting to vote. Yeah, so on, on Friday before the election, I posted that Capital Weekly article, uh, basically making this crazy claim that rain was going to affect turnout. Um, there is research that shows that rain affects turnout, especially among voters who are least likely to vote. Um, and it's because, just an actual fact, it is it adds a friction, right? No. It adds a friction to your day, whether it is dropping off kids at school gets harder, getting to work gets harder, you know, your plans change throughout the day, all that kind of stuff. So you know, self-sorting into like, I'm only going to vote on election day, which 40% of Republicans were doing is kind of idiotic when a life event can ruin yeah. that, that plan, whether it's a kid scrapes their knee or you have to run an errand, you get a flat tire or it's pouring rain. So I think that it did impact turnout, even though you might have anecdotal evidence of kids standing in line at San Diego State University in the pouring rain or Rob's example in, in Long Beach. That doesn't mean that, well, actually Rob's point, Rob does make the point that voting in person was harder because you had to stand in rain and go to the local bar to get a Ziploc bag. Mm -hmm. So it should have it depressed turnout, but there will be some potential. What I've been looking for is in those late ballots, when we talk about blue shift, red shift, Will those late ballots have more Republican ballots in them? Because some Republicans, maybe 10% of them that were planning on voting on election day said, okay, maybe it won't get counted, but I'm just throwing in this mail because I can't get there. Or they'll throw in a drop box uh, rather than uh, voting in person because of the rain. So it might've either A, depressed turnout because of the rain in those areas, or moved some of that turnout to the stuff we're gonna count later. Finally, we saw going into the cycle that Reno was going to have, you know, its first snow and an early snow for them uh, and, and suggested that it might affect the Senate race in Nevada. And it looks like that Senate race might be switching Democratic. And it could be because of just like the massive snowstorms and rain in Nevada, where Republicans don't automatically get mailed a ballot. All voters don't get mailed a ballot, but you have to request it. So that ability to change gears and say, okay, I'm just going to mail this in or use a Dropbox isn't available to voters in Nevada who are against the vote by mail system. I also think we should look at how it may have repressed the votes in certain geographic areas of the state because there were road closures in certain areas of, of urban cities where there tends to be higher Democrats living there. And so I think that we should probably look in the future and how those road closures may have repress the votes of certain Democrats that tend to vote just on election day. 
And I mean, uh, I, mean uh, I want to get to the mayor's race uh, soon, but just uh, one thing when uh, you brought up people waiting in line in various places, I mean, we saw pictures of, you know, students in Michigan, uh, college students waiting, you know, waiting in line for two hours to vote. Um, there was still, uh, reports of a lot of energy among a, a number of groups that traditionally do not have the world's best turnout um, in, in during midterm elections. I mean, do you think we were, we're hearing anecdotal evidence, but are you seeing any statistical evidence that young people, uh, voters of color, uh, turned out more this uh, midterm than they traditionally do? Uh, we do see more Latinos uh, in the vote center numbers. Uh, off the top of my head, I think it was in LA County, I was looking at the difference between vote center and early vote. Early vote was 21% Latino, vote center was 26% Latino. It does seem that there's some populations uh, that like voting in person. Young people also were a larger share of the in-person voting and are a larger share of the late ballots to be counted. But we won't really know facts on what turnout was for different minority groups or different age groups until January. And while there are 169 of us watching this right now, I don't think I could get 20 of us to get on a Zoom in January to talk about what November turnout was. You know, yeah, I mean, the sad thing is we, okay. are, we want instant answers, instant gratification. But like, you know, a third to maybe 40% in some cases of the vote is sitting in bags and getting processed right now. And uh, and I think that's probably the case in LA that we have a very, very large aftercount. Um, this, this was a big complicated ballot. And so from top to bottom, it was a homework assignment. I, you know, I had to, you know, get on Ballotpedia to figure out all my local stuff like everybody else. And it's a it's a 30 minute exercise and people tend to put it off. Um, we got a lot more early vote in the recall because it was so easy. There was one question, just say no. Well, there were two oh, questions, no. but you were telling people right. there was only one question. There was only one question, Paul. <laughs> I only answered one question. <laughs> um, you know, this is very true. I mean, we were on a work Zoom for the political team at the Times on Monday, and it was sort of like, how many of you filled out your ballots? And the number, and, you know, we arguably know something about politics, and uh, the number of us that had was, well, it was the vast majority of us. And it was good. Well, for, for me, it was like, I need to research the judges. Same, that always takes me forever. Um, but it was a long ballot. It was a very long ballot. Um, so LA, yeah, Sean, you just brought this up. Uh, let's talk about the mayor's race. What's going on there? What are you seeing? Look, I think it's it's uh, it's a tied race as as we closed. Uh, it was we had two tracks the Friday before the election. They were exactly the same in the margin. Um, we saw this as a race where, uh, you know, candidly, we were behind seven to ten points to start. Uh, but it's a wrong track environment in LA, uh, and Rick ran relentlessly on a homeless plan with real specifics that people could get their heads around. Uh, and in this wrong track environment, Karen essentially ran as the incumbent uh, uh, with endorsements and experience. Uh, so we felt very good about the frame. Uh, it's sort of from the standpoint of what we have to do to thread the needle to win this thing. It's kind of like a sunbeam through the keyhole. We got to get it just right. Uh, but we feel very good about the position we're in. We're up two and a half points. Um, Paul and I were talking before we got on the call. There's you know, the, the next 100,000 that we can see that remain to be counted uh, are demographically way better for us. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're feeling very, very uh, uh, optimistic about where this thing is gonna land. Um, I would caution people not to just assume uh, what happened in the primary is gonna happen again. Uh, Rick had a 15, 13 to $15 million field program. 
the largest in LA history. We're going to find out whether it's true or not that um, that a big field program is worth a field goal in a tight campaign. Um, but uh, I asked our, our analytics guy, Simon Vance, yesterday, gun to your head, who would you rather be this morning? And I was fully expecting him to say uh, the pessimistic thing. And he said, I'd much rather be Rick Caruso today. Uh, correct you on one thing. Your field program for the Caruso campaign was the largest field program in the country's history. There's nothing that has paralleled that $15 million worth of spending. Part of the reason why we don't see that kind of field program that intense is because you know, if you're running statewide in California, spending $100 million on a campaign, which is basically the only thing you should be spending $100 million on, and uh, a lot, you don't see that level of spending in a municipal race. A, a statewide campaign, you don't put that much money into field. You don't put as much effort into field because, you know, it's just hard to do it at that scale. What they did in LA and the field program, I hope will be studied for a long time, win or lose, because it was... Uh, you know, basically no holds barred, uh, and they ran an excellent field program. And just a shout out to the campaign manager, Irene Ibernosian. Uh, people who do LA politics know Irene and uh, Jay. Killer. Che is amazing. Well, you know, one of my first campaigns was uh, the 2010 gubernatorial, and that was you know, Meg Whitman versus Jerry Brown, obviously. And you know, at that time, Meg spending, I think it was 143 million of her own money, a total of about 178 million. Like that was unprecedented. And this is in 2010 dollars. So you know, mm -hmm. the, the amount that Rick Russo put into LA, it's it's I'm fascinated by it, and I want to know more about the field. And I mean, after this is all over, I think there's so much to take into. What's 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 sort of you know, if you if you work in our profession and you work outside of California. Um, the 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 point levels we got to on TV were kind of garden variety. Like, you know, Perry McAuliffe blew us out of the water last year in terms of how many spots he got in front of people. Um, I know people saw a lot of Caruso creative in LA and it obviously had a lot to do with how we were able to drive support for him. And, um, you know, I mean, the ads took us from being tied on who's best on homelessness to having a big double digit advantage by the end. The ads helped us move a net 10 points with Democrats uh, to go from being down 10 to leading with whites and Latinos. And I think if we're ahead at the end of the day, in reality with whites and Latinos, uh, the demographics get very hard for the for the Karen Bass campaign. Um, but but the, but the, the, the order, you know, the, 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 I would sort of say that you got to balance it out, you know, and, and acknowledge the extremely large IE that Karen Bass had, uh, the three decades of building her own brand identity uh, by holding public office. And, and she had the full-throated chorus of the whole Democratic establishment coming in for her. So to suggest that he somehow had an advantage because he was able to go to TV and tell a story. Um, I think that 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 there was a if there was a mistake that was made in the campaign, I think a lot of people got complacent in the summer uh, and made the false assumption he wasn't coming back. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up TV and uh, and uh, I, I, as, as I said, I live in Long Beach. I, I was in Ventura two weeks ago. Obviously, we're seeing all these ads <clears throat> for you know that have no impact on voters here. Um, but you know, the one ad that we saw a lot, um, the Scientology ad. Yeah. Uh, and then also that caused some some blowback. Right? We then you saw the science the Scientologist basically bracketing your ad. There's also the video that if uh, you all haven't checked out um, that uh, the, the viral yeah. video that Scientologist put out about uh, Ace and Sean and their whole group. It's a uh, I've never quite seen anything like it. Um, can you talk about uh, the reasoning behind the ad? Uh, well, the, the first thing I'll say is we're not going to be intimidated by the Church of Scientology, and I'll just put that out there. Uh, um, but. 
the we tested every piece of creative that every ad that we put on the air we tested it uh, rigorously. Uh, we we had a series of, of of spots on on Karen Bass, and I've never seen anything like it. The 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 movement on the horse race that we got off of a respondent getting one impression of that Scientology ad. And my theory about it's pretty simple, you know, that we all see these political ads and they all look the same and it's like voiceover and claim and headline. And most voters are looking at that and they're like, I really don't believe any of this shit. Um, we had video of her, you know, making a pitch to a group that for most people uh, is just so far beyond the pale. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and when you have video of your opponent uh, uh, making a huge error in judgment like that, uh, that, that there, there really, for a lot of folks, there's just not an explanation for, for, um, uh, pandering to the church of Scientology, uh, given their well-documented record. Uh, and, and it, it, it worked like crazy. And, and I sort of, I think it served to soften up. It raised doubts about a person who had, you know, LA is, is I love LA. I was a former deputy mayor, but it's deeply superficial. And I think people had a deeply superficial image of Karen. And uh, and and this served to kind of open up uh, the doubts. Uh, and then what we followed that with, I think the most consequential uh, journalistic event in the campaign was the uh, LA Times reporting uh, Karen Bass's association with the Mark Ridley Thomas case uh, and what the prosecutors put in writing. Uh, and, and so this USC corruption quid pro quo issue, uh, having softened her up on Scientology, raised additional doubts. But ultimately, if, if Rick wins this campaign, it's going to be because he put a bigger, bolder, homeless plan out there. Uh, uh, and, and he was able to make a case that if you want real change tomorrow on homelessness, I'm your guy. Uh, Karen is running on experience and status quo solutions and endorsements. And, and I think that's the sort of strategic um, uh, contrast that, that, again, makes me feel pretty optimistic about where we sit today. I had to say, I've raised in LA too, and it's hard to understate like how volatile the homeless issue is there, as it is in a lot of places. But it very much divides Democrats and progressives against moderates, and the whole criminalization element of that. And it really kind of put, I think, Karen in a little bit of a box, right? Because the progressives are hammering her for being too, you know, criminalization oriented, right? And she's trying to come out with her own. Um, path forward on that, and it, it it was a tricky issue for her. I think another thing in LA that's interesting is, you know, the progressives and the moderates are kind of splitting the council races right now, but the districts the progressives are winning are the lower turnout districts, right? And I would argue that as the count goes on, um, you know, those more moderate folks are going to extend their leads, and that's going to accrue to Caruso probably as well. Yeah, and the, um, you know, we don't have Doug Herman on to uh, refute uh, Sean's talking points, um, but so Paul's I do the think... secret bass surrogate. So go ahead, Paul. Okay, sure. I'll put on my bass surrogate hat. Um, I'll just say that you know, in, it, it's right that homelessness was one of the most driving issues. When you look at the uh, uh, exit polling that Capital Weekly did on the absentee ballots, uh, it's the number one issue cited for people who voted for Caruso was homelessness. Um, what's interesting is for Bass, the number one issue was other, and people were writing in Caruso, 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 like they, they were voting in ways kind of that 
the same way we see in our politics, Mike Madrid, who we'll talk later, talks a lot about us being driven by rever like reverse partisanship. Like it's not that against? we love our party, it's that we hate those other guys. In a lot of ways, people are voting for Bass, were voting kind of against Caruso a lot because of, you know, his, you know, not being a, uh, not being seen as being progressive enough or whatever. Can I just um, point out that we are now seamless? <laughs> Asima left, so there's no moderator. This is awful. Um, but I'll just finish up by saying that, you know, uh, the what we do know is this next batch of ballots, like we've talked about, is more Democratic, less Republican, younger, and a little bit less Latino than the election day, a little bit more similar to the Latino population of the early votes. And it will be the test because uh, Sean here is saying, and I think with good arguments, that that's a population that's going to be good for them. But if Doug Herman was to pop his face up on the Zoom, he would give the arguments about why that's good for Bass. The truth will come on Friday when we see those first results. We'll have our first sign as to whether or not this is a Bass or Caruso shift. And I don't think we, I don't really know. Um, well, we so. saw in the primary that just swamped us. I mean, I have never experienced an aftercount um, that was just like, made me like just go from the top to the bottom, you know, in, in a week, it was, it was brutal. Uh, and, and we just got a really high concentration of Democrats in those aftercount ballots. There were some days where it was well north of 70%. And, and so that's the thing I would be watching as these ballots come in on Paul's absentee ballot tracker in the dailies is what's the composition of Democrats and what's the composition of Latinos. Yeah. And Seema says she's trying to get back on. She was having a little internet problems, but um, definitely it's worth watching. And there's other races where this blue shift, red shift thing is going to really drive the outcome. Uh, you've got like the, we talked about earlier, these congressional races and legislative races, which we're going to see in the first tallies that hopefully come today, tomorrow, and Monday, um, really what direction these are going. And I'm sure there'll be a bunch of stuff we all put on Twitter about it. Hey, if I can jump in since Seema's not here and ask a question that uh, I'm hoping you might be able to answer. So can you talk about the surprises that came along? I'm thinking about the Ken Calvert race and the Quirk Silver race. I didn't see anyone talking about those being particularly close. And then here they are quite close. So I'm hoping, uh, Paul, you would be the obvious person to ask, but anyone well, else that maybe weigh in on those? So my look is that Quirk Silva should gain in the late votes, uh, that her district in the primary, the late votes were definitely breaking a lot more Democratic. Um, the Rollins-Calvert race is really interesting uh, for people who are just kind of like, why are we talking about this district? It wasn't one talked about a lot early on. Ken Calvert was one of the uh, main proponents of Prop 8, a ban on gay marriage. He's a longtime congressman. But then in redistricting, the commission sought to make the Ruiz district, which is the district to the east there, more majority minority Latino. Uh, and in doing so, they took the Palm Springs portion out of his district. So they took away that part of the Coachella Valley and put it into the district with Ken Calvert. So you have this heart of the gay community right in the middle of this district for Ken Calvert. It creates huge problems uh, for Calvert, but there is a big Republican advantage that he has there. And so we weren't thinking of that as being a district during the redistricting process where it was a clear Democratic potential flip. Now, the first numbers that came out, you started to see Rollins up by 13 points. I think he might still be up by like 11 points right now. The challenge is that they've only reported 90,000 ballots 
And they reported those ballots. I think uh, Rob Pryor noted they reported those ballots like at 820, so right after the polls closed. So those were clearly vote-by-mail ballots. And it would show with that early big Democratic advantage with Republicans likely voting later at the polls. We now are at a point where we're at, you know, day three, essentially, uh, going into, you know, this process of trying to get in more votes. And it doesn't appear as though they've reported day of voting. Their website says they have, but the numbers don't show it. So uh, when we do get day of votes in that district, I think that there will be a big snapback. In the primary, this district in post-election counting shifted 17 points Republican. So it is one that should have a massive red shift. And if that does happen, then Ken Calvert should be able to pull that off. And this will also affect the underlying assembly race. Uh, so I think that uh, a Quirk Silva pulls this out, and I think that Calvert pulls it out. There's a very consequential supervisor race there, too, which could, if it holds, give Riverside a dead majority for the supervisors, which would be fascinating. Yeah, and that's even before the Maldef lawsuit to make them redraw their supervisorial districts takes effect. But yeah, the, the Riverside County supervisors should be um, Democratic majority after this. To Tim's question, I also think that they weren't expecting it to be this close to be, you know, Quirk Silva's in two, and I do agree. I think she pulls this out, but also Mainshine is uh, in mm -hmm. trouble on the legislative side. Both yeah. Quirk Silva and Mainshine are sitting on a ton of cash. So to Tim's question, no, I don't think they were expecting the vote to be close at all. <laughs> I think Mainshine has over a million dollars in the bank. So Marva, actually, since you're going to have to leave us in a minute, uh, what are your last thoughts? Is there anything you want to bring up that we haven't talked about so far? I know you're going to have to jump off in a moment. I, I normally focus on legislative races on the state level and local races and everything. So I actually learned a lot on the congressional side today. So thanks, everyone. Um, no, I just think that it's one of those uh, races. The, this campaign season was interesting for me. I think that there were trying to put too many things on the ballot, even though we only had seven ballot measures The by far, I worked on Prop 30, by far the most interesting ballot measure. <laughs> the only thing I think that uh, people split Democrats and Republicans and everybody else. Um, but it was just one of those things where this campaign cycle, I think should just be studied really, really closely in future years because things just went sideways on so many levels. All right. So uh, well, since we don't have Seema, I'm going to go uh, quickly to some questions since Seema's not here. I did Lightning round. From, Lightning. Uh, from, from Stephen Viglio, uh, wanted to know if the lack of an endorsement from the governor had any impact in the LA mayor's race. I personally thought that was fascinating. Uh, you saw so many other high-profile Democrats endorse in that race, and Newsom did not. And it's not that he wasn't endorsing in a lot of Dem-on-Dem -dem races. We saw that with the Ashby Jones race here and a few other races. Did it Did it matter? Did anyone, was there someone just waiting out there, <laughs> hanging on their ballot to hold on, to try to figure out how, how they should vote based on Gavin Newsom's uh, endorsement? Or I really don't think so. I mean, I think they gilded the lily on endorsements. Uh, they had the vice president in twice. Uh, and I think it was a big investment of the White House's credibility uh, to come into that race. And uh, and it's going to reflect on their coattails uh, if Rick Caruso pulls this off. Uh, uh, but I do I, I do think it was a you know, it was a you play to the advantages that you have as a campaign. 
Um, I thought the Obama endorsement was the most consequential for her. Uh, I do not think that at that point, additive endorsements did much except to make her the incumbent. I think it did make a difference. I think Gavin Newsom is a trusted messenger, and we saw that with Prop 30, right? I think that he caused enough confusion with that proposition. He's a trusted messenger. He's the leader of our state. He's the top Democrat. Not having his endorsement was a big loss for, for either one of them. I will agree that that Gavin single-handedly took down Prop 30. Totally. Uh, his his uh, I think that was one of the biggest flexes I have seen of, of credibility with voters um, the whole time I've been doing this. That thing was 20 points up. Uh, he went up six weeks out. He used his own money in the last week to reinforce his opposition to the thing, and it went down like a you know like a ton of bricks. But that points to where the endorsements matter because right. the endorsement matters matter a lot in, in, in ballot initiative races and in candidate races. You're, it's a very different uh, calculation for voters. And it might I think it also in a top with, of the ticket race with how much voters already know about a thing. So if voters are getting wall-to-wall -wall ads on the mayor's race and they already know Karen Bass, they know Caruso, they're not waiting for somebody to come explain this to them, it is less impactful uh, than if it's Prop 30, where the first thing they hear about it is this confusing thing about, oh, the governor's against it, but it's environmental or what's going on. And I think that Governor Newsom clearly killed it in, in that single ad and that act of endorsing uh, the no side on Prop 30. But in the governor's in the mayor's race, you know, I don't think he was going to really swing many people. You know, if if voters already have their mindset on something, uh, it really does take a big, huge endorsement like Obama coming to L.A. to actually have a little bit of oomph. They put Obama on TV. And if yeah. they get over the finish line, that's that's going to, for my mind, be a factor. So I do have another question. I see Seema is uh, she popped back up for a moment and is gone again. We do have a question. Uh, Given the results of Tuesday's election, is this a message to California Republicans that they need to distance themselves from the more extreme elements of the party? Uh, and I think we've already had, in a way, we've already had that answer from Paul, who uh, believes that you know Trump is going to going to moderate and that that's an unrealistic expectation, and probably the same for people who have been big Trump supporters. But what do you think? Are are Republicans in California going to start to look at this differently, given what happened on Tuesday? I think they've tried in recent years to create a more moderate Republican effort, and I just it just doesn't it doesn't take right. I mean, there have been a, various efforts to just have only Republicans be more moderate, or having a moderate Democrat, moderate Republican faction. It just doesn't gain any traction. So I think even if they try. It'll, it'll stay on course where it is. Yeah, the elites aren't driving the base in that party. It's the other way around. And how they get a handle on that, I think, is going to be a function of whether they can turn the Trump page on Trump. So, Seema, if you're a Republican candidate, you're kind of boxed, right? Because if I distance myself from Trump, well, I'm just getting a ton of mail saying I'm a Trump Republican anyway, right? right. You pissed off that wing. Right. And if you go full MAGA, you have to you're testing what the ceiling is. You take the floor and test the ceiling. Yeah. So Seema has a question. She texted me and said, uh, Are you the moderator now, Paul? No, I'm, through, <laughs> I'm the she's, captain she's now. Texting me questions. <laughs> so uh, nobody would want me as a moderator. But um, uh, Sean uh, and Marva, what do you guys think about the controller's race and why Chen didn't actually 
achieve what a lot of folks were thinking, which was the opportunity for Republicans to take the first statewide office since since 2006. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty biased. You know, I, I've, I've done a lot of politics in San Francisco and L.A. Uh, a lot of the top talents in this country have come out of the city and county of San Francisco because it's such a knife fight culture in the local political scene. Uh, Malia Cohen is a rising star. The people who underestimated her um, need to go home. Uh, uh, and and I think that the, the other, for my money, the other rising star that 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 you know got elected uh, is the Long Beach mayor, uh, uh, Robert Garcia. He's uh, going to make um, Marjorie Taylor Greene's life miserable back in D.C. Uh, and uh, and those two folks are just people to watch uh, uh, as 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 rising stars in the party. Uh, I think that I think I think Malia's got limitless potential. I tend to agree. I think Malia did the work. I think the numbers were on her side and she did the work and that's expected, but that's what I expected to see, right? She she didn't just sit back and wait for things to come to her. She went out and did the work. So I do have to jump though. And I appreciate everybody's <laughs> like giving me Barbara. great things. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Bye. So we do have another uh, question from the audience. Uh, can anyone speak to the vote in AD10, Gara versus uh, Wynn? Paul, this seems like this would be a question for you, I suppose. Well, I think we saw this in the primary. Um, this was a race where uh, we really thought, or I really thought, that it would get taken care of in the primary, that there was a Republican on the ballot that would suck up enough votes for it to be a uh, kind of dem on reap race uh, coming out of the primary going in the general. I also, interestingly, thought the opposite in the uh, in the Kevin McCarty district, where I thought that that was going to end up being a dem on dem race. But in that case, they did a really effective campaign to try to push that Republican into the runoff. Um, after the primary, when Nguyen had more votes than Guerra coming out of the primary, um, that sets the stage for what you're likely to see uh, going into the general. Um, it takes an extraordinary effort to overcome uh, you know, that primary uh, uh, loss. So um, you know, the base voters in Elk Grove versus the strength of the Sacramento vote in that district um, the uh, cohesiveness of the Vietnamese population, uh, even independents and Republicans who might be generally voting for a, a Republican, if there was one on the ballot, they're more likely to vote than a white Republican would be likely to kind of cross over uh, in, the, in the runoff. That's one thing about these dem-on-dem -dem races that people need to understand is that our analysis going back to the original implementation of the open primary was that the counterparty that doesn't have one of their party members on the ballot, 35% of them won't vote. But if you have a candidate that is of their ethnicity, like a, an Asian candidate, a Latino candidate, um, you will see crossover. So Melissa Melendez will get Latino votes uh, in a reap on reap runoff. Uh, Freddy Rodriguez will get Latino votes in a uh, reap on reap runoff, whereas, um, uh, you know, in this race, Nguyen will get Vietnamese votes in a Dem on Dem runoff. Um, on in some Sacramento area races, it is very close, uh, and I'm wondering if you could speak to just what we might expect to see. I'm thinking of the Dave Jones Ashby race. Uh, that is quite close. And that was interesting in that, you know, speaking of endorsements, it seemed like Ashby had all of the endorsements. Uh, yet Jones seemed like he did pretty well. I think he's down a few points right now. I don't know how that's going to shake out. And then also we had a question about the uh, 
Cooley-Hoover race. And uh, anyway, any thoughts on those? Hi, Seema, it looks like you're back. Yes, thank, thank God for good neighbors because I've run to their house and stolen their internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know, did you guys already talk about Lonnie Chen? And did you talk about Newsom becoming the next president potentially? We didn't talk about the presidential. We did talk about Chen, and we talked about AD10. So I think, uh, I think you want to tee up a presidential question. Yeah, well, just, but... I mean, with with Padilla and with um, and with Newsom. I mean, obviously they didn't really campaign for themselves because their you know their elections were such a given. But you know, first of all, Alex Padilla. I mean, being elected, elected, not just appointed, but elected the first Latino senator from California twice uh, what, on the same ballot. Twice on the same ballot. <laughs> um, what is that? What is that? You know, could you speak about the, the, the significance of that in his future? And then Newsom insists that he just has no interest in running for the presidency, which every candidate does before they run for the presidency. Um, so, could you talk about you know, is he going to run for president? And what you know, and what do you think his future is? How does he play in, in Iowa or Ohio or Michigan? I'll take the first question first. I I, uh, uh, I think oftentimes the best campaigns you run are campaigns that become uncompetitive. Uh, we're really proud of Kamala's 2016 race that turned out to be kind of a turkey against Loretta Sanchez. That didn't just happen. It's a result of a lot of frickin' hard work behind the scenes. Uh, and, and and you know, nobody makes any money when you clear the field and you don't run any ads, but those are the best campaigns. Kristen Bertolina, um, one of the best strategists in California, Alex Padilla's campaign manager, really deserves a shout out for uh, for, for shepherding Padilla to the position where he could take, he could roll over eight to 10 million into the future to help his colleagues to build equity in the caucus. Uh, uh, and I think it's a, um, it's also a credit to Alex that he has focused so much on campaigning for others, uh, his Senate colleagues, and also he's a Senator who understands the importance of the delegation in the state. And so he's just done a ton of work up and down the state hustling and humping for democratic house uh caucus members and um and i think he's in an extraordinarily advanced position not having to run this re-election campaign and to blow his uh bankroll in a re-election and to use the uh, energy and finances to help others uh, uh to get the legislative work done uh gavin is not running for president uh and uh and joe biden is running for president and that well is there's 2028 also and and you know joe biden also said you know i think it was yesterday I'll, he said I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what gavin is going to do he's going to keep up the fight he's going to keep taking on these national villains i'll make the cynical political point that fighting Ron DeSantis and fighting Abbott and 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 pointing out the rollback of rights in these red states uh, has been a uh, a frame that has helped him in California. When we started the recall, he was performing way behind Biden. He was performing way underneath the Democratic brand. Now in California, he's five points ahead of Biden. He's five points ahead of the Democratic brand. What he's doing isn't just raising his visibility nationally. It's helping him with Californians who appreciate that when Fox News shits on us uh, and mainstream media, SEMA, LA Times, repeats these tropes that they develop about how California is some dystopia, the way to defend on it is to fight back and make the comparison. And yeah, to talk about the red state murder problem and to, to, to invite people 
uh, to come to California uh, to enjoy the freedoms that we've all taken for granted for the last 50 years. So I would look for this governor to be a champion for California values, to lead the fight for California uh, in the national debate. And that's what he's done. It's what he's going to continue to do. And just keep watching. It's going to get even more interesting. <laughs> um, well, it, it, it certainly will get interesting, I think, over the next couple of years. Um, we, actually, I want to uh, swing back to Padilla for one second, because for so long, um, the senators from this state have been from the Bay Area. They've been women. Um, and the Bay Area is different from Southern California. And where Dianne Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, uh, and Kamala Harris, so sort of their experiences, their lived experiences, are a little bit different than Alex Padilla and where he grew up and his parents. You Alex, know, grew, up, Alex grew up in Pacoima. He could hear right. gunfire at night. The kids had to play in the backyard. Uh, he he got you know re recruited by gangs, but they left him alone because he was a baseball player. Uh, he had a wonderful uh, uh, set of role models in his parents. He made it from Pacoima to MIT, which I think is just. Um, if you don't believe the California dream exists and the American dream exists, just look at Alex. He has a set of life experiences that make him a truly unique United States senator. So, I mean, so how do you think that changes what uh, you know, what the senators you know prioritize in 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 DC? Um, if you're ever well, going, to pretty telling. The first thing he did when he got there was he was like, let's find a pathway to citizenship for the emergency workers who are undocumented who got us through the COVID emergency. That was his first act. And I can tell you, uh, you know, the 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 one of the problems with the Democratic <laughs> politics in the Senate is a lot of Democratic senators don't have large Latino population. The Latino population in this country tends, it's growing and it's expanding, <laughs> but it tends to be concentrated in some states, uh, which make certain folks very responsive and interested in in championing uh, uh the cause, but but, you know, uh, talk to your colleague in Illinois sometimes or your colleague in West Virginia. It's 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 just not the same. So having uh, true representation in the United States Senate for the first time, the state with the largest number of immigrants, the largest Latino population, uh, I, I, I think the meaning of that is is just profound and ineffable. <laughs> And then um, Rob and Paul, could you weigh in on uh, whether you think Sean's telling the truth about Newsom and his presidential ambitions? Well, I'll tell you this. I went to D.C. Uh, a month or so ago, and everybody I ran into said, is Newsom running for president? And I was like, look, if you have polling as a gubernatorial candidate in California, and that polling says that Democrats want somebody who's going to go punch a powerful Republican in the nose, how are you going to do that in California? I mean, who is, I, there's just nobody in power in California who's a Republican you can go and throw a punch at. So you have to go outside of the state. We have to, there are exports to Texas and Florida from California, and one of them is Democratic outrage. We have to try to find somebody to go punch in one of those other states. So uh, I think that his strategy of doing that was smart. His focusing on how Democrats need to talk in these elections. He speaks from somebody with experience and having won elections and overcoming like even what people thought or outperforming what people thought he would uh, like in the recall. So, um, you know, he's doing the things I think that he should be doing. Uh, I think that if, you know, if we go into 2024, I don't 100 percent think that Biden for sure is going to be the Democratic nominee. But if he's not, then. Kamala Harris is well positioned. She, uh, you might have questions about her as a presidential candidate, but the fact is, 
that when a vice president runs for president, they do not lose their party primary. Um, I don't know how far back you'd have to go to find somebody who ran a serious campaign for president as the sitting vice president and didn't at least win their partisan primary. So, uh, and if she steps down and doesn't do it, which would be uh, surprising, then you've got others, Pete Buttigieg, uh, obviously, um, and others that would step up, I'm sure. Uh, the So I, I think that he's not running for president, but I also think that if uh, the opportunity was put in front of him and there was a clear path that it would be crazy for him not to. Um, he's building a national brand, you know, and whether that pays off in two years or six years, right? You know, you build it and you try and keep your options open. I tell my candidates that all things being equal, politics like 90% time and the other half's money, right? But, you know, you have to be in the right place at the right time in order to capitalize on those things. And there's no question that Newsom's already practically the president of blue America, right? <laughs> With his campaigns that he's running and being one of the few Democrats of profile who are willing to really be pugilistic in that way. And there's certainly a, a section of the party nationwide that's crying out for that, that I think is latching on to him. Um, but he'll have options. He's still a relatively young man. Um, there's going to be a Senate seat open too. I don't know. I don't think he's interested in that, but there are other options, but he has to sort of build that profile in order to keep those options in place to take another step if that's what he wants to do. Um, and then before we take a few questions from the audience, um, there's a little bit of breaking news that I will let Paul discuss. Uh, yeah, so all, early on in the, uh, in the conversation, I said that I thought that Ken Calvert would end up overtaking Will Rollins once more ballots were counted, and I didn't will it into existence, but it has happened. Uh, Ken Calvert is now leading Will Rollins in that race by a small margin um, with the latest ballots that just came in. The red shift is real. Well, it is real out there. And Rob Pyers, uh, again, on top of with Target Book, sending me a little DM right as that happens. So thanks to them. Um, and then I, I see one question from the audience. Um, do you think that Tuesday's uh, election day, did it help or hurt the top two primary? Uh, what about ranked choice? Let's not go ranked choice. That's crazy talk. <laughs> like the college baseball world series people explain it to me and i still don't understand how it works. <laughs> it's like a good idea i mean i just like ranked choice just uh, the only ranked choice election that i really followed very closely was the ballot in san francisco mm -hmm. uh and i thought it was pretty remarkable that the moderates basically carried the day there uh the district attorney uh the moderate supervisor the new supervisor uh guy i've known for a long time matt dorsey uh, uh, the the the, the ranked choice system, which was put in place as a progressive project in San Francisco, has really served to largely, with one notable exception, uh, uh, elevate moderates. I also think that San Francisco deserved the London breed Mark Leno runoff as an actual like binary choice where they could actually dive in and and make a you know more focused choice rather than having all those names on the ballot with a ranked choice voting. Same thing mm -hmm. in Oakland. You know, the Oakland days, gets robbed the opportunity to have real decisive binary elections because of ranked choice voting. In the old days, you had like a nice six week general election, a fast sprint. Voters got to distill and uh, and it really did change the dynamic. It was it was a, um, you know, count me a, a, a fellow Mitchellian uh, uh, anti ranked choice. I loved it in the classroom. Second. If you're in a classroom setting and everybody has perfect information and right. there isn't that that challenge of trying to learn and understand the process, it is excellent at getting more optimal choices. But in the real world, with all the friction of people's daily lives, 
and without that kind of way to, as, as Sean said, to distill down to those two candidates and those issues, it has big failings. And I, I don't, I hope that it doesn't spread beyond Oakland and San Francisco. And we but have it's been pretty good for San Francisco because it's made the city a lot more moderate and reasonable. Well, I see that Tim is rejoining us, so I suspect our time is up. Um, I'm really sorry about my internet connection issues earlier. Um, I hope you all and <laughs> continue to chat and, you know, as I was texting people questions. Um, and this was really, it, this went really fast. This was a great discussion. And I really want to thank uh, all of our panelists. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Tim. Thanks. Thanks to all the panelists. I was really hoping you're all going to weigh in and tell us who's going to control the Senate. Uh, but uh, I guess we'll... We'll have to check in on that later. It looks pretty good for the Dems right now. Yeah, it does. Uh, so, I mean, the vote that's it's all about the vote that's out in Nevada. Mark oh, Kelly's what, gonna win. You think Arizona, you feel comfortable with Arizona too? Uh, I think Mark Kelly's gonna win. And uh we did it once, we can do it again in Georgia. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so to all our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. We the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.